I'm Greg Dollar Coleman. Welcome to Ellipses Thinking, a podcast dedicated to exploring the nature of the creative journey in process. If an ellipses builds the perfect bridge from where you've both been and are now to where you're next meant to be, then what intrigues me most lives in the spaces between those three tiny dots. Since I began these conversations, I have been surprised when I should not have been by what is perhaps the most common characteristic of every single guest, that being their desire, intention, and active commitment to living a life of learning where curiosity rules the road and drives the engine down it. I know this should not surprise me. To be creative demands such a mindset. As Sarah Lewis has written, masters are not experts because they take a subject to its conceptual end. They are masters because they realize that there isn't one. On utterly smooth ground, the path from aim to attainment is in the permanent future. And in a field guide to getting lost, Rebecca Solnit writes, To be lost is to be fully present, and to be fully present is to be capable of being in uncertainty and mystery. Historian Aaron Sachs added that explorers were always lost because they'd never been to these places before. They'd never expected to know exactly where they were. Yet they drew on known science, experience, instinct or inner wisdom and a deep sense of optimism about surviving and finding their way. Miranda Lucas has learned and relearned how to trust that feeling lost and being lost are very different things, and that as a scientist with a deeply creative spirit, she approaches her work and her life with an openness that sets herself up to being surprised, trusting that the questions she begins with are just that, and that if she stays curious, she will come to understand that her questions are only the first ones she will be asking. There's this very cool study of a group of architects designing a room, And at any point throughout the process, they said, yeah, I knew exactly what it would look like. (laughs) And at no point did they draw something that resembled the final product. So, and this is another big theme through my work is that we, we are thinking through doing. We are not just thinking in our heads. We are not just, um, in the case of the architect as like a concrete example, we are not saying, yep. This is exactly what it will look like. I can see it perfectly. I've drawn it in my mind, but rather what it is, is as they are doing, as they are creating, that is the process of thinking. And that is what leads to, you know, kind of what most of us see, which is the finished product. Miranda's master's work took her to South Africa to study the postural threat displays of male vervet monkeys. It was this work in observation of the monkeys that inspired her PhD focus to utilize similar observational techniques to better understand human behavior, and specifically that of patrons of art galleries. Her central curiosity lies in understanding how people engage with visual art and what physical and social affordances public art galleries use, or perhaps lack, 
to encourage a deeper human experience, one that can lead to curiosity and meaningful encounters with art rather than feeling alienated, or that these public spaces are a place reserved for someone else. While admittedly spending a lot of time focusing on her academic studies on art as research, Miranda embraces a similar commitment to inquiry in all aspects of life, allowing for her curiosity to lead her from one path to the next, and the next, and the next. So before we got too far into her current fascination with a gallery visit, I asked her to welcome us into her ways of thinking and learning and how they allow her to approach life, fusing the artist and the scientist. So, Miranda, in our preliminary conversations, you framed the nature of your work and research as an exercise, which I loved. Um, I sense that you find, if not comfort, uh, then the need to be able to flex in response to the discoveries you make on your creative and curiosity journeys. Has this always been so? To flex. What do you mean by flex? I'm not sure. Well, just that sense of maybe it's not comfortable, but it seems to be a necessity and one that you're willing to to trust. So maybe that's hmm. what I'm getting at. Have you always trusted that? Is this about your gut? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one thing that I tend to do I guess in my like creative uh, journey exercise that I'm on is I find things that I'm not very good at and then I dive into that and I am not okay being not good at something. So, so for instance, um, uh, in, in my undergraduate degree, I was not very good. I don't think or I saw it as a weakness at um, comparing animals and humans. And I, um, that really frustrated me because I thought that was something that I, for my um, interests, which are in, you know, evolutionary psychology, that was something that I wanted to be able to do well. And so rather than shy away from that, I thought, you know, I'm going to do a master's in pretty much animal behavior <laughs> and animal observation. Yeah. So, so what, so what I'm curious about around that is, I mean, is it sounds like that's a motivator, <laughs> but yeah. it also demands your vulnerability to acknowledge that which you're not, you're not yet on, 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 you know, on the path to mastery. So I guess that's, I, I mean, even as a, as a younger student than university, were you aware of that as a friction for you that I need to go after that, which I don't yet know? Yeah, I don't think I was aware of it until university. Um, and before then, and since then, I have, I definitely would say that I have perfectionist tendencies. So I get very frustrated um, when I attempt something and I'm not good at it right away. So that's something that has been a, a, a consistent thing for me my whole life. But yeah, definitely wasn't aware of it before university. <laughs> the, uh, I, I, the digging in. Yeah, I just, I love it. And I, and I, I want to celebrate it because I think, I think conversely, lots of people hide from that, which, which they feel they don't know because they're afraid somebody else will figure that out as opposed to just simply 
accepting that how could we how could we know what we don't know until we know it right maybe it's the love of the challenge too um it's something that i've heard from your other guests too like when you get comfortable doing the same thing over and over again then you kind of go okay well what's my next challenge how can i push myself um next what's what's coming next because i i i want to be excited and um i definitely would say that i'm a passionate person like i i pursue things with uh an intensity once i kind of latch on to them so uh yeah maybe the combination of the two yeah so you've brought us right into the to the work into into your studies from from undergraduate to master and now as you're working towards your phd mm-hmm. you're partnering with another student to build a program that looks at human behavior that is situated in lived environments right yes so i understand that this academic fascination to observe behavior began as you i think as you indicated with non-human subjects can you tell us a little bit about that and what that what that first layer was in your master's work yeah um so as i mentioned I wasn't very good at writing about animals, so I thought I need to get a handle on this. And I sought out a supervisor um, that I thought just was a really interesting academic person. And that would be some advice that I would give to anybody looking to do a graduate um, degree of any kind, is to find a supervisor that you think is really interesting and has a similar or a compatible work style. And I I found one at the University of Lethbridge. Her name is Louise Barrett. She's an amazing professor. And um, yeah, I I originally reached out to her and and, uh, she said no, (laughs) which was hard to hear. Um, And so I, a little bit uncharacteristic of me, I I wrote her back and said, why? You know, uh, um, and and she said, you know, I think we just have really different points of view. And I I don't think I can give you uh, what you need. And so I said, that's fair. um, But can I write you back in a year? And she said, absolutely. So a year went by and I said, you know, I'm still really interested in working with you. And I'm not set in stone with this point of view. Like this is just um, the training that I have for my undergraduate. And I'm very open to knowing what else is out there. That's why I wanted to leave Edmonton in the first place, because I wanted to broaden my, um, my view of the world. And uh, it also happens in addition to being a fascinating researcher, she and her husband co-manage a field site in South Africa. So that's where I uh, collected my data for my master's. I went and lived in a remote part of South Africa and we, had the privilege of um, observing uh, wild uh, vermin monkeys uh, that are habituated to a human presence. Um, our research group has been with them for 10 years. Um, so we know their families and everything, the, the, you know, their group cohorts. And it's a, a wonderful project to be a part of and gave me um, a foundation that, unlike any other in observing uh observing behavior as specifically with non-linguistic animals. Um, so that, yeah, that was my master's training. I was interested in the body posturing of the males as they negotiate their dominance hierarchy. 
but I always knew that I wanted to bring that information back into um, the human world. And with this emphasis, like you said, on it being situated in their environment. Um, and I've always had a passion for the art. So I've managed with my PhD to marry these two interests, which I, I just feel exceptionally lucky <laughs> to do. Wow. Yeah. So be, before we go there, I want to come back to this idea of observation, especially when we think about the creative process and how in, how pivotal that is to be present to what you see in the frame that you're looking through or listening through or sensing in any other way. What, what one or two things about observation became clearer than ever before in, in, in your time with the monkeys? Um, you know, this very strange thing happened uh, with the, when I was with the monkeys, which was in the beginning, I'm waiting for them to fight because um, that's really what I'm interested in is this like escalation of aggression and how they manage that. And for the first, I was collecting data for six months and I feel like for the first three months, they just weren't fighting <laughs> they just were not fighting and I thought what am I doing here oh my goodness like I can't make them fight what what do I do if I go home with no data um and this interesting thing happened where I became so in tune with um with their environment with their and when I say their environment, like they're a part of it, it's a reciprocal thing, right? It's, I just became um, a, a part of their system in a way that I could anticipate when things were going to happen before they happened. And I just knew when to have my camera on. I knew when to have it out, when to have the lens cap off. And it just became so natural and easy to start recording these interactions. So I managed to get a lot in the last two months, which was great because it was a very stressful lead up until then. But I came home and I worked with a wonderful, another prof at the University of Leth Lethbridge named Serge Pellis. Um, and he does this amazing work with, it's called Eshkel Walkman Movement Notation, which is a, um, it's a way of notating dance, actually. That's why it was originally designed but it's wonderful because it can be applied to any body and it um, accepts the way that different bodies move. Um, and so he taught me how to do this um, on the monkeys to look at the subtle aspects of their posturing. Um, and I mentioned this to him that I developed this sense of anticipation and he knew exactly what I was talking about. And he, as a, as a person who also has done, observation for his entire career um was just like yeah isn't that amazing when that happens yeah. so something must have clicked for you just to let go mm -hmm. and drop in and, and be with yeah 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 and there's something in that notion i mean as when we when we talk about creativity we talk about the ability to observe and to take in and to respond to but it seems that we're born with that. And then we lose sight of that, that it becomes very, very focused on what we're supposed to pick up, what we're supposed to observe for. And, you know, that 
it's the question, can observation be taught or is it about being rediscovered because we had it all along? And I wonder too, if that's where you get to that place where like an infant, you are in and amongst those monkeys, mm-hmm. just being with and, 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 and learning from. Yeah, I think, I think it is partly that. I think children, um, they're allowed to observe. And as people, like as adults, we, um, that's sort of taken away, I think, where it's uncomfortable to give the attention that observation to this extent really demands. Um, uh, in my PhD work, I, I visit art galleries and it's exhausting being there and, and doing the intense level of observation. Same with the monkeys, it's a, but you're in a hot, physically demanding environment as well. But it's, um, so in that way, as adults, I think it's also falling into a rhythm of how to observe and not be um, obtrusive, not to be like, you are necessarily a part of the thing that you are observing, you're not separate from, so you have to, the part of you has to accept that. Um, but also you don't want to draw so much attention to yourself that you're changing what's happening. So it's about finding, like for the monkeys, they find direct eye contact threatening. So do humans, by the way. So it's about, you know, how to do it in a way that makes everyone feel comfortable to do what they were doing anyway, um, but still being very purposeful. I just, yeah, I just wanted to stop in that for a minute because there was something there that I think connected back to that sense of, of my use of the term flexing and your discovery that I know I'm here as a scientist, therefore I should know what it is I'm looking for, but maybe it's going to reveal itself and I need to get out of my own way as well as out of the monkeys and just let it happen. You know, my Louise, I'll just say is wonderful. And Peter for just saying, you know, me being like, I don't know a lot about perfect monkeys, right? I started this master's, but this was literally a weakness. And them saying, yeah, read for sure, you know, go in prepared, but you will go and then you will understand your question and just trust that that is the right way to do it. And same with the PhD, you know, just go and do the work and then it will be, it will become apparent why you're there. And it's okay not to know that exact question at the beginning. In fact, it's a bit silly to think that you do fully understand your exact question at the beginning of this kind of work. Ellipses Thinking is a proud member of the Ordinary Podcast Network. To learn more about their programming, visit ordinarypodcasts.com. And and so as you say, there was a natural shift back to human behavior. <laughs> right? And that and that 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 for you has has brought an intersection with what I sense is kind of a a, a lifelong or a, a, a lengthy intrigue with public spaces and yeah. uh, and so as you began your most recent studies you got really curious about the experience of experiencing I, the art the space those around you and you posed some questions and this is these are your words yeah you're standing in an art gallery now what are you interested in the art around you. Is it intriguing? Maybe you could not care less. 
Are you standing there alone or surrounded by people elbow to elbow? Does this space make you feel like part of an elite or an outsider? So that was your departure point. Mm -hmm. Why these questions? Why this fascination? Um, I just, I have always loved the arts and I, um, you know, even to, to touch briefly on what we were just saying, I think that science is actually a very similar process, um, to, um, to the artistic process. Like I, I, I don't see as much of a distinction between the two, the deeper I get into it. Um, and it's a shame that scientists have to say like, I knew exactly what I was looking for at the beginning in order to be taken seriously. But, you know, I don't think that that's always necessarily true. Maybe with, you know, strict biology or chemistry, but the the social sciences, no, I, I don't think so. Especially when you're looking at um, humans in the places that they live. So um, my departure with that was really, it, I wanted a way to reflect back in my scientific writing and my scientific work um when an artistic experience of any kind was like really doing it was really connecting with people was doing you know what i think when artists put work into the world that's kind of their intention is to connect with someone to make them think to make them feel um and unfortunately, the the grant situate the granting situation from governments in particular is just it's dwindling. And the number one metric right now to show whether um, art was connecting or was successful is through you know door counts, how many people came, how many butts and seats, and if you sold out your show, then that was a success. And I just don't think that's true. Um, and I wanted a way to mm, begin to build what I call a, like a behavioral toolbox to say, you know, these are some things that are happening inside spaces where audiences are connecting with what they came there to encounter. Um, yeah. And I think that that's informative for audiences and I think that's informative for artists and I think it's informative for governments so I think you know to be able to uh, start to explore that from a, a different point of view was going to be valuable so is it too early for me to ask what you're beginning to discover what's popping its head up and saying hmm, look at me um what I'm beginning to discover is I like to bite off way more than I can chew <laughs> So, Good for you. <laughs> um, yeah, I know, but I think it's it's um, that's okay. I'm. Uh, it's been hard for me to say that that's okay, and that this this part of my PhD is just part of the journey. Um, so, in partnering with this uh, computer science undergraduate who's now graduated, his name's Justin Petluck, and he's a amazing uh, human and farmer, wonderful farmer, and uh, he has custom built a tracking software but what he's really interested in and i am too is um, pose estimation from an ai perspective so 
essentially what we're trying, what I, when I started, I wanted to do this Eshkel Walkman movement notation, the dance notation. I wanted to do that on people in these spaces. And I wanted to see, I wanted to see the leaning in and the crouching and the pointing and talking and all these different things. Um, But what I did was I picked four institutions that were of varying sizes all across Canada. And I recorded, brace yourself, 13 terabytes of data, (laughs) video data. And it's just entirely too much to go through frame by frame. It's just entirely too much. So um, where I am now in the journey is I uh, am working with Justin. We have a a tracking software, which is the first step in this pose estimation, which will be the next step. But unfortunately, that's just too big for the PhD. Um, but it's been it's been um, very rewarding, and we are answering different types of questions about how people use their interpersonal space um, in different types of exhibitions, and just looking to characterize. Um, yeah, what's happening in different environments based on um, what I'm loosely referring to as like the culture of the institution, um, because that's really important where you are. And that's a, a major thrust of my work is that where you are is actually more important than who you are. So it's about setting up these spaces in a way for us to have a successful and meaningful interactions with art. Can you say more about the where you are? I'm fascinated by that and the way you really leaned in on that and what the implications for the institutions might be. Yeah. Um, So it, it relies on this somewhat older theory now called behavior settings theory. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not a technical one. So I promise it's, it's, it's easy to, because I love it. And that's why I'm going to just tell you about it really quickly, which is um, this man, Roger Barker and his team, they took over a small town in Kansas and they wanted to understand the behavior of children because these standardized tests were not telling them at the time in the seventies or the fifties when they started anything about what kids did. It was just focused on no, are they introverted? Are they smart? But when you actually looked at these children in the places that they lived, you knew nothing about what they were doing. So they took over a small town and they recorded absolutely everything that all the children did in this small town for a period of one year. And what they found was that what was a what a, a huge, a fundamental predictor of what the kids were doing was where they were. So if they're in a playground, they're going to behave like they're in a playground. The rules are different. And if they're in a grocery store, the way that we've set up a grocery store dictates very clearly how we are supposed to behave there. And this is a consequence of the physical setup and the social setup. And without knowing it, galleries are doing this too. They're setting up the physical and social rules for um, the patrons there. And that dominates over how people are moving through the space. More importantly than, you know, is that particular individual, you know, Greg, is that, are you introverted? Are you extroverted? That doesn't matter. That falls away. 
it pales in comparison to where you are. So, so yeah, what's it's, your hope? It's what's your hope? hope? Yeah, what's your hope here? Um, my hope is that we set up environments in a way to encourage curiosity, to make people feel comfortable to ask questions, to spend time, to linger or to sit and not think about the art, you know, to have a break, um, but then to dive back in and, and to not feel like an outsider, to not feel like, oh, well, I don't have a university degree in art history, so I don't know what the right questions are that I'm supposed to be asking, so I don't belong here. Because that's one thing that has struck me again and again through my observational work is, and it's, it actually prompted an entire chapter in my PhD was this, in my pilot period, someone, actually a few people would tiptoe up to the threshold of an art gallery and poke their head over the threshold and say, am I allowed in? Like, is this space for me? And that to me was kind of sad because it's, it literally is for them. That's why it's there. So how can we do, how can we be better at inviting people in and inviting people into those conversations and making them feel like it's for them. It's, you should feel safe to ask questions and be curious and, and become a part of this conversation. Because there's someone on the other end, I think that art is necessarily social, and there's someone on the other end that's waiting for you to have that conversation with them. This can't possibly be singularly the responsibility of the institutions and those who operate them and set up the programming and establish, as you say, the physical space and the relationship. Guess what I'm hoping the, the ramifications are, and maybe it's, maybe it's the gallery that can continue to bridge out and make that invitation a wider invitation. And I think many of them are. Certainly, certainly I'm hearing the parallel to theatres, right, where there are still those who feel, mm, I'm not sure that I have the right clothes to sit in the plush seat that's there. When in fact, perhaps if they just framed it as, isn't it nice that they've put a nice comfortable chair here for me yes. and for everybody yeah. else. And, and so, yes, I think there's certainly movement forward to say, we need you, we want you, come one, come all. I also hope that we will continue to not take ourselves so seriously to just, you know, uh, to make these spaces ones that genuinely feel comfortable rather than like, I have to get dressed up and getting dressed up is nice, but you know, you can go and just feel comfortable. And I'm, I'm reminded of that because I took my daughter to the circus last Friday and it was just so lovely how we could talk and we were laughing and, you know, hooting and hollering and they and the uh, the performers were reacting and it was just it was such an enjoyable experience and um I, I sort of have my my toe or my I guess more like my foot in the theater world still um and uh I see that you know with like relaxed performances um where you know particularly with the work that I'm most familiar with, which is punctuate theater, because I'm the, the president of the board of directors there. You know, we have performances where you can, we don't have a hard start time. 
you know, you, you can kind of wander in and you can chat and you can have food and you can leave. In the, and I know that that sounds horrifying because, because some people are like, no, I, I want to come in. I want to find my seat. I want to sit in the dark and, and be swept away by the magic of being taken to another place. But there's also something very liberating about not taking it so seriously all the time and having the opportunity to be a little bit more relaxed. And um, it sounded like you might have called that experience at the circus with your daughter magical as well. Yes. And a place where it's the magic that, that creates the memories and you've created one. So yeah. again, it's a, it's a great anecdote to, to just allow for some softening around that perhaps. Hmm. So again, I want to go back to something that we've been talking about, but you, you, you shared with me in a, in our, our first conversation and it was, it was a, a little bit like, I, I know this sounds kooky, but I didn't think it sounded kooky at all, but you, you talked about <laughs> firmly believing that art to be research as well. Mm-hmm. And that there's a significant creativity invited in that research process. Right. Am I, yes, I'm accurate, accurate that that's yes. why. Yes. So yeah. If we if we took it one step further, in your mind, how might we see life as a research exercise? Mm. Yeah, I I can only really speak for myself. And the, as I grow up, <laughs> I learn that I am not a typical. <laughs> I always thought I was very typical. Um, and then I taught my first university course, and I you know, I graded everything like I thought everyone would answer the same as me. And that was the first time I was really confronted with the fact that that is not the case. So, um, yeah, so this is just speaking from from my perspective, um, which is uh, that, yeah, you know, my life is one ongoing research fascination. And I love looking at it that way. Thanks for that, Greg. I love like, that is very true. And it's full of chapters that I get to pick up and explore and then put down and pick something else up. Um, my initial fascination with psychology was around the psychology of music, and I get to pick that up sometimes. I also love the psychology of sleep. It is just so interesting. And even though it's not something that I'm doing in this moment, it's something that I get to continue to pursue. And I see it as a life. This has been a big shift for me in my, the way that I view things is that, you know, I used to think my PhD will answer everything and it will be of this tightly bound book that will have nothing after and nothing before. And now I'm just seeing it as, you know, the PhD, although it has many chapters, is just one chapter in a, in a constant uh, continuing exploration. Um, and, and I'm so fortunate that I get to work with other PhD students who are artists first and mm. who are coming into the, this, I guess I would say like my realm, I, I feel much more comfortable in, in this, putting myself in the science realm, even though I do see them as so similar. And it's been a joy to talk about their process and 
one thing is like the way of the way of seeing learning a way of seeing um, that artists do and I think I had to do that with observation but you there's just so many parallels in the research process of creating whether it be science or art that people don't see in the finished product um, often so we we sort of disregard it we think that we, we think that an artist or a scientist comes to the canvas with a fully formed idea. And maybe that person is telling you that they did come to um, the, you know, their work with a fully formed idea. There's this very cool study of a group of architects designing a room. And at any point throughout the process, they said, yeah, I knew exactly what it would look like. <laughs> and at no point, did they draw something that resembled the final product? So, and this is another big theme through my work is that we, th we are thinking through doing. We are not just thinking in our heads. We are not just, um, in the case of the architect, as like a concrete example. We are not saying, yep, this is exactly what it will look like. I can see it perfectly. I've drawn it in my mind. But rather what it is, is as they are doing, as they are creating, that is the process of thinking. And that is what leads to, you know, kind of what most of us see, which is the finished product. I love that. And, and, and there's something that was kept, kept coming for me as you used that verb, see, right? The way of seeing. I kept, I kept translating it in my head as the way of being, and you've added doing. And it, it strikes me that, you know, even as we giggle at the, the notion of, oh, it's exactly the way I envisioned it, without dismissing it, it may very well have been because the, the exactly the way I, I'm hearing you say, the way I envisioned it was uh, in this continuous process. And that that language or the drawing might have actually been too limiting, right? So often I'm hearing from, from artists a sense of frustration. I can't put into words mm -hmm. how I got to this. Well, perhaps you were never supposed to. You were supposed to yeah. put into to music, or you were supposed to put into the the, the sculpture. And mm -hmm. and so again, another way of providing permission, you know, uh, even to the doer, to the beer, and to anybody listening, as you and I have talked before, who who don't necessarily see themselves as a creative individual. But you've just so beautifully talked about, well, we all kind of are, so get over it um, yeah. and, just, and allow yourself to be. Yeah. And, and you know, a tendency that I have is to not want to start until I can see how it will end. And that is something that I am learning to get over um, and to say, you know, sometimes you just have to start and you might have to, because you will think, my thinking happens in my writing. My thinking happens in the doing of writing and research and reading. And, and often that first draft, I have to throw it away. That's okay. That's something that I've come to terms with. But that was my opportunity to think through the problems that were in the piece and it prepares me for the second draft, which is about communicating um, 
my ideas with an audience in a way that makes sense. So the first draft is for me and the second draft is for other people. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Anne Lamott, but uh, in, in one of her her most famous books, uh, Bird by Bird, which is which is a treatise on writing, she talk, has a whole chapter on the shitty first draft. Oh, I and need to read this. Embrace it. It's 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 got to be. It's got to be there in order to get any further. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. And so much of this I've I've learned through the amazing group that I've been with, um, but is to let go of that first draft and let other people see it, with them knowing that it's rough. And it's me thinking, um, but it's important to let them see it, let them see what you're thinking and let them help you because ultimately nobody does these things completely by themselves. And when you allow yourself to be vulnerable like that, everybody benefits, everybody, you know, we all shine brighter by sharing our light. So we, you know, that's the philosophy of our lab is that we you know by sharing, we, we all get picked up um, and benefit from it. And it's, it's a lovely environment to be a part of. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds like it absolutely is. So Miranda, you, you have shared with me that, that, you know, you've tracked our first season of conversations. Um, you know, that I love to ask the question at the end about, uh, about inspiration as we think forward, um, that sense of here we are in this ellipses thinking space, this place of I'm in the middle of it all. And you've so beautifully and succinctly said we're always, always in the middle of it all. So get used to it and find out what you can find out while you're there. Yeah. Um, but if we leap ahead, I know that there's, I know there's a, a, a little one in your life. Jump beyond that couple of generations down and somebody is saying i want to tell you about miranda the scientist the artist the volunteer the mom what are the words that you hope will somehow reach you oh i must say i've really stressed about this question because it's so hard um uh it's so hard to know what your legacy will be um And in trying to answer it, this is a quick aside, but in trying to answer this question for myself, I asked my husband, Mark, I said, how do you remember the previous generations? And I thought that was so interesting. And he said, it's always through a story um, because I do think we are storytellers. And uh, so for him, it was that his great grandpa hated rabbit stew. (laughs) And I think, And I think that that is so funny because it also tells you that he was working the land. He was a first generation immigrant, that they didn't have a lot, that they had to catch rabbits and eat them all the time. So it's just, it's not just one thing, right? When you say it's a funny way in, but it's actually telling you a lot more about the story of perseverance. So I just, I don't know what that will be for me at this time, but I hope, um, that that it will be that I was full of adventure um, in my you know science and artist arts pursuits, but also in my kiteboarding and my biking and everything that I do. Right, um, so I hope it would be that. 
Um, but it will probably be that I've made good bread. <laughs> and were you making bread before 2020? That's the real no, key question. <laughs> no, I was not. I was not. But I started my own starter and with the fantastic, mm. through the computer remote help of some people to help us get through that time, mm. we, we did it together. And it was a beautiful experience to learn with other people and to share our failures, <laughs> our first mm. bricks of sourdough that we ate anyway as crackers. So <laughs> heart attack. So there you've just, you've, you've just given us the story, right? You've just mm -hmm. allowed that adventurer to, to have a, an anecdote. That's beautiful. And indeed it tells as you just did so many things, it reverberates out. Thank you for joining me this, uh, this lovely day. And I'm, uh, uh, I, I, I will be fascinated to know what next discoveries you you are about to make. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been just such a pleasure to be here and to reconnect with you. I'll treasure it. Thank you so much. If you are interested in knowing more about Miranda's work with the Vervet Monkeys, visit banzai.ca, B-A-N-Z-I dot C-A. And for more information on her current focus on human behavior and the application of the Monk Tracker, a fully functional open source tracking program designed by Justin Petlick to support a variety of methods for tracking and movement analysis research, check out lichenlab.ca, L-I-C-H-E-N-L-A-B.ca, a website dedicated to embracing an art-science fusion of ideas and thinking. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and will subscribe and join me in two weeks' time for my conversation on creativity, community, collaboration, and the power of knowing when it's time to let go with the painter and mosaic artist Theo Harasimo. Ellipses Thinking is a proud member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It is produced by Jordan Dollar Coltman and Greg Dollar Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. As a resident of Vancouver Island, I wish to acknowledge that I am a visitor on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the territories of the Snonoas and Qualicum people. The first peoples have been here for over 10,000 years. Their ancestors still here with us in the sky, the land, the ocean, and all of the beings that share this sacred place. As a settler, I gratefully embrace the opportunities for growth as integral to my personal journey of collaboration and reconciliation as I learn and further support the possibilities that lay ahead. I remain committed to practicing my craft in a decolonized space.